The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. I'm really happy to be doing this, to giving this talk tonight. I want to tell you that it's something very close to my heart. Um, and I'm going to be talking about myself uh, to a certain extent, so just bear with me. Um, there are a couple of titles that I thought about giving this Dharma talk. Uh, one was Robert E. Lee and Me, which I thought had a nice ring to it. And, and, and the other was uh, civil, Inner Civil or Not So Civil Wars, Causes and Conditions. But none of these seemed quite right, and you may, but you might get the general idea that the talk is going to have some reference to um, events around Virginia, especially uh, since August in Charlottesville. Um, I'm from the Lexington area, so we have things going on there too. Um, the title I settled on is Who Are Our People? I had a colleague who often spoke about my people, by which he meant the beliefs and culture and values and norms and the sacred objects and sense of place and so on that he was raised in, and of course, the stories that he was raised with. Um, just to check in, how many people here were raised below the Mason-Dixon line? A few, okay. So, I was, um, in case you can't tell by my accent, but so you, you all may well hear some, something in my story and the story I'm gonna tell, um, and maybe some of my people in that regard, um, or you might have had a very different experience as well. And some of you have been involved in IMCC's White Awake groups, as have I, and I expect some, if not a lot of you, have been working on feelings and issues and biases and attitudes, those kinds of things related to race, and slavery, statues and the symbols, um, if not before, then certainly since August the 12th. And very possibly some of you um, are discovering that this work can be a really important Dharma door um, and access to the Buddhist teachings. As I have looked into my own whiteness and my white people, my white Virginia people in particular, I've noticed more deeply the judgments and positions, attitudes, rigidity of views, um, and certainly those old faithfuls, anger, greed, hatred, and delusion that affect how I am within myself and in the world. And I want to give you an example that's powerful for me and how I see it in my practice. Um, this is about my own work around the con Confederate statues, and for me specifically the statues of Robert E. Lee. Um, despite believing myself to be quite clear that the statues have and are causing a great deal of pain for many people, and stating that I think they should come down, I started being aware of feeling resistance whenever this topic came up. And I was noticing it in my body, you know, it's kind of a burning feeling in my chest and a squeezing in my throat and just kind of feeling weak. Um, and I found myself with thoughts about which statues should come down and which should stay and why, like considering that statues of, consider of Confederate soldiers who were killed and lost to so many families during the war should maybe stay. 
And I'll tell you that as recently as a couple of years ago, I'd been in a Virginia Friends condo, which looks out onto the now shrouded statue and of Lee right here in Charlottesville. And I comment to her how nice it was that she could see him. Like put him right out there with the beautiful mountains that she could see. So, and just a few weeks ago, I was touring Lee Chapel in Lexington, where I live, with house guests. And, you know, Robert E. Lee is buried there with a lot of his family and his famous horse traveler. And I found that I felt even a little tearful listening to the docent speak about Lee in his office there in the Lee Chapel. Where was all this coming from? A part of me felt appalled by it, really. Um, As I became more mindful about these thoughts and feelings, I also became aware that I thought I'd somehow put all this behind me as I'd worked to learn more about the history and effects of slavery and racism in the South and in our country, and as I felt empathy for those Americans affected by that history and how it lives on. Obviously, not so. My own history was showing up deeper in my bones than I would have ever imagined. So in the relative safety of my wide awake group, I was able to speak about my discomfort when statues of Robert E. Lee were mentioned. Sharon, our Sharon, our teacher Sharon, who's in my group, spoke about not being aware that people like me who were born and raised in the South but were against slavery and racism felt the way I did. And I was surprised that she didn't know. Um, And a white Virginia friend in her late 70s who raised her children in Virginia during the Civil War movement in Richmond, actually, recently said to me, other people who didn't grow up with our history and live in Virginia during the 60s have no idea what it was like. That hadn't occurred to me either. I'm not really sure why I assume that Sharon or anyone else not from my segment of Virginia would know about these things. That would be another interesting exploration, but... Um, I'll certainly admit some anxiety about revealing this to my white awake group and who I deeply respect and also feel are my people. And I have some anxiety now about telling you right here in Charlottesville because you've been through so much and it's awkward. But um, I've been really curious and interested about all of this and I'll come back to that in just a moment. So I'm going to give you some background about when and how I formed this view of Lee and some other things. The life I was born into, about me and my people. So this is where it gets, you know, about me. So hang on. Um, You may very well have heard stories like mine, but I hope it's helpful to hear how my own inner conflicts and alliances have arisen and how I'm trying to work with them. In my early education in Central Virginia in the 50s and 60s, I was taught Virginia history twice in the second and the sixth grades. I distinctly remember the orange book that we learned it from in the second grade. It was heavily filled with Civil War, what I would believe would be now be called alternative facts. Um, (laughs) I was taught that Virginia's famous slave owners were men to be revered and honored. One of the most notable was Robert E. Lee just want to make sure everybody knows who this Robert E. Lee is. Anybody here who doesn't? (laughs) Uh, You'll see that this name had quite a different resonance for Virginians like me, born and bred in my era. A Virginia friend and peer recently told me of her distress when someone called him Robert Lee, leaving out the E 
as if that was blasphemous. Actually, there was no need in Virginia to say more than Lee in any setting. The response was a sense of a straighter spine, respectful demeanor, and almost a sense of sacred reverence. This, of course, would be true of Martin Luther King for some people, myself included. As my maternal grandmother's home at my maternal grandmother's home in southeast Virginia, which was tobacco farming country and 80% uh, black, were not one but three portraits of this man, Lee. Her father was a Confederate soldier who was injured but not killed. His photograph was also in the home with his injury, a missing finger prominently and proudly displayed. When we were speaking of this recently, a Virginia friend from there said, a house was not a home unless there was a picture of Lee in every room. She was dead serious, and I understood completely what she meant. To further illustrate how the Civil War lived on in my life, 118 years after that war ended, here's a story about my grandmother, Miss Helen, whose namesake I am, and who was the daughter of that Confederate soldier and the maternal matriarch of my people. My widowed mother remarried in 1983 to John, a wonderful man from Chicago. When she took him to meet my then 95-year-old grandmother, who was stretched out on her daybed, oops, excuse me, she looked piercingly at John, turned to me, I was standing beside her, and said fiercely and disparagingly in what she thought was a whisper, but she was pretty deaf, so, he's a Yankee. Of course, he heard her clearly, and his eyes twinkled with good humor. I don't think she ever forgave him for being a Yankee, but she grew to like him. So, back to Lee in the Civil War, it was quite common for Dixie to be played in Virginia by bands in a wide variety of circumstances, for it to be requested and for everyone present to stand. Sometime during my late teens, when my attitudes were opening up due to Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, I was out with my older brother and his friends at a bar where Dixie was played by the band. I did not stand. He and his friends were angry with me, and even now he brings this to my attention when he's upset with me. And it's now been 152 years since that war ended. So, As far as racism goes, there was never a mention of slaves in my family. However, when my mother and her siblings were young in the 1920s, their father died and my grandmother hired a young black teenager to live in the home to take care of them while she went to work. I was told countless stories about how wonderful this young woman was and how close she and my grandmother were. What I now know was that what my grandmother described as a close bond could not have been that way for this young woman. I'm wondering right now what it was like to, for her to live in a home with three portraits of Robert E. Lee. I thankfully never heard directly racist remarks in my grandmother's home or neighborhood. My grandmother referred to black people as Negras. Her tone clearly indicated her level of respect or lack of for the person she was speaking of. In this town, there was an all-black college which abutted her property in a white neighborhood. Otherwise, the black people lived in a segregated area which was common then. In central Virginia, where I was raised, my parents employed a maid to clean once a week, as did many other homes and families in our neighborhood. 
I observed my mother working with the maid on cleaning projects and again, never heard disparaging remarks about the black people in our community. In fact, I often heard of her gratitude towards our maid, but there was probably unconscious, but there was probably, wait a minute, I lost my place, okay. An unconscious un undercurrent, such as when she would say, she's as good as gold, there was an unspoken sense that this maid was better than other black people. Fast forward to my college years. I had a Haitian male friend during my junior year in college. When I learned that he planned to stay at the campus during Thanksgiving break, I invited him without hesitation to our home, having not a shadow of a doubt that he'd be welcome. My mother said, of course, initially, but then called me back, very distressed to say that she could not let me bring home a black male. I could bring home a black female but she didn't want people thinking that I was dating a black man. I have no idea what I told my friend, whether I decided to be honest or not. I hope I was kind. I hope I was kind to my mother as well because she, it was a really hard decision for her. It was clear that she hated disappointing me and being inhospitable to my friends, but it was really shocking. I had never known her to be inhospitable to anyone. There's a lot more to say about all this, a lot more stories about my people, a lot more about how I formed these particular views. And again, I know there are likely some of you who have similar stories. When David Camp came to Charlottesville to do training on how white people can talk to other white people who are racist or racial skeptics to try to perhaps change their views, he said that trying to tell them their views are wrong is like telling them that everything their mother, their people taught them is wrong. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, it's a lot easier for me to accuse my mother of being wrong than to let somebody else do it, say it. And as I said, I can still feel that discomfort come up when someone says something negative about Robert E. Lee, one of my people. So I am trying to, with mindfulness, look into this to keep exploring when I think about this great split in my own being, how in the world could I espouse liberal, empathic, non-racist attitudes, concerns, and positions, along with many of those in my current world, including my white awake group, who are also my people, while still admiring a statue of Robert E. Lee? How does it work that here in my own inner backyard bones and memories are the subtle racist teachings of my people, the ones I was born and raised with, the subtle and not so subtle judgment and loyalties, as well as the examples of forbearance in speaking ill of the other, the honesty of my mother in the face of her inability to resolve her own conflicts and confusion, and my own efforts to have empathy for the experiences of people of color and to educate myself about what is true about slavery in our country, the Civil War, and about Robert E. Lee. How does all this work? How does all of this live in me and show up in my life and interactions with other people? How can I hold space for all of it? What do I do about this conflict in me? And how does this relate 
to our relationships to hate groups and others like them, and even with each other? Can we find a way to hold all the parts of ourselves that may be on opposite sides, not so civil sides, with kindness and compassion? Can we remain open to the connection between those sides with the ways they are in relationship and the ways they may be strangers to each other and the ways they may know each other? Can we have the spaciousness to include a civil interaction? The poet says, I don't need to tell you who he is, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. And guess what the answer is? Outside of holding it with mindfulness, I don't know. (laughs) Not entirely. Maybe not even close and certainly not yet. So what do we do I and we do? How do we be? One of my favorite stories about Sharon Salzberg, which you all probably have heard, um, is something that happened to her on an airplane. And I'll just tell in my own words, um, and it may not be exactly like she told it, but she was kind of afraid of flying. And um, she uh, was, the plane couldn't land. I think it was in California. And so she, you know, and it was circling and circling, and she was getting more and more anxious. And she looked around the plane, and she said, you know, she suddenly just thought, these are my people. We're, we're all in this together. These are my people. And she started saying meta for herself and everyone on the plane, and it really helped. Um, so for a long time, I have taken this practice as something I do in uncomfortable or unfamiliar or scary situations, and it does indeed help with anxiety. And I do it in other places when I think about it, you know, like at the grocery store or wherever I am, and it really does help me remember a greater sense of belonging and non-separation almost every time I do it. So with mindfulness, for me, the effort has been to include it all to see if I can hold a mindful space, a field big enough for all of it. And right now, for the most part, I'm trying to just let that be enough. In that space, I'm looking to see if I can allow all, at least for a time, to be my people. Because I know that it's true even when I don't feel it. I remember at least some of the time the myth of separation. I think probably the Confederate and Yankee soldiers in the middle of that awful war knew it too. Remember those stories of those kids um, trading cigarettes and tails um, across the lines at night when they weren't fighting. Um, They forgot those false alliances to their people for a while. They were just people all together until the next morning when they had to start killing each other again. Ajahn Chah says, We human beings are constantly in combat at war to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. Those young soldiers like us certainly had circumstances that they couldn't control. There's no question that there's warfare, fierce judgment, and self-punishment inside me at times. I have described things that I definitely do not want to be there. Sometimes it's all just too much and I want to shut it all out, just go on maintaining my unearned white privilege to stop thinking about the question of how my people for 150 years shut out the parts of themselves that would not have allowed people to be bought and sold 
I know this puts me squarely in the center of the problem with the way our world is now, which is why this mindful path is so important. Jack Cornfield says, when we let go of our battles and open our hearts to things as they are, then we come to rest in the present moment. This is the beginning and the end of spiritual practice. Only in the reality of the present can we love, can we awaken, can we find peace and understanding and connection. How can we remember what matters most? How can we remember our intention to wake up, to pause and relax when we find conflict and turmoil and distress, judgment, war? To be willing to show up and look at it with whatever courage we can muster and to allow it to float to the background when we need to until we're ready to come back to greet what we find you know with acceptance and kindness and self-compassion since I've been working specifically with this over the past weeks and months I found myself recently one morning waking up with a knowing rising to the surface I knew that some or maybe most of my reactivity to negative comments about Lee or about the statues is strongly related to ideas and feelings about home and family and safety and security and love, about belonging. My grandmother's house was where I felt those things. Robert E. Lee, like King, was in some or many ways just a guy. For me, there was some forgiveness and ease in knowing, in this knowing. In this sense, who Lee was or was not is not really important, even though I'm still curious to know more about him and what was true. I have hopes that the decisions about the statues will eventually be a source of healing. And there's some self-compassion around cherishing those childhood memories of safety and belonging and around wanting to cling to them now while knowing they're a delusion. That's where the possibility of compassion for the other arises. Not that I can completely know anyone else's causes and conditions or what they were born into. But in thinking about the events of August the 12th or the flaggers in my hometown, Lexington, when I consider the alt-right, the neo-Nazis, I can at least wonder about who their people were, where they may be clinging to belonging, who they have loved and felt love from, and how this may underlie their motivations and actions. I can wonder what is raw and tender for them. I can wonder what longing for belonging and goodness may be there. Out of my own explorations, I can try to remember that they're actually my people also. It was maybe a lot easier for Sharon Salzberg to give meta to those people on the plane than it is for us to send meta to hate groups. I don't know, but we can have that intention. In that spaciousness, we can try to remember to offer meta for ourselves and for all our people. I know that for me, this is a work in progress and there's more exploration to come. Keep practicing with it over and over. Joseph Colstein says, we can get attached to some understanding or insight and stay satisfied with that. In this case, we are weak in the faith 
that opens us to what is beyond our current level of understanding. For mindfulness to function as a factor of awakening, it has to be the springboard for investigation. So what else can we learn about this? We can do our best to pay attention to what arises in the present. We can feel pretty sure there'll be something else and hope we're gaining wisdom and heart about how to heal this inner war so we can try to bring something better into this suffering world of ours, which I believe is all of our intention. And finally, from Pema Chodron. To the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. When we apply the instruction to be soft and non-judgmental to whatever we see right at the very moment, then this embarrassing reflection in the mirror becomes our friend. Seeing that reflection becomes motivation to soften further and lighten up more because we know it's the only way we can continue to work with others and be of any benefit in the world. So... Let's just take a moment to practice, if you like. And um, I stole this from Jack Cornfield, but it's a meditation on stopping the war within. So just get comfortable. Let me stay with this thing here. Take this off. Get, com- get comfortable for a few minutes. Um, letting the body be at rest. And let the breathing be easy and natural. And just bring your attention into the present moment, sitting quietly, being aware of any sensations or tensions that you might be fighting. Don't try to change them. Just notice them with a kind attention. And in any area of struggle that you discover, let your body relax and your heart soften. Let go of the battle. Just breathe quietly and let it be. Now shift your attention to your heart and mind and just notice what feelings and thoughts may be present. In particular, any feelings or thoughts that you are now struggling with, fighting, denying, or avoiding. And again, just notice them with an interested and kind attention. Let your heart be soft. 
be open to whatever is there without fighting. Be, breathe quietly and let it be. Now, just sort of cast your attention over all the battles that still exist in your life. Just sensing them inside yourself. Just looking. If you have any kind of ongoing struggle with your body, just be aware of that. If you've been fighting inner wars with your feelings, any conflicts with fear or confusion, loneliness, grief, or anger, just sense the struggle that you've been waging. Notice the struggles in your thoughts as well. Just being aware of how you've carried inner battles. Maybe they're inner armies or dictators or fortifications. Be aware of all that you've fought within yourself and how long the conflict has been there, been perpetuated. With an open gentleness, allow each of these experiences to be present. Just noticing each of them with interest and kindness. Spaciousness. In each area of struggle, let your heart be soft. Let your body and your mind be soft. Opening to whatever you experience without fighting as best you can. Let it be present just as it is.
letting go of the battle. And now just be, breathe quietly and let yourself be at rest. Inviting all the parts of yourself to join you at the table of peace in your heart. Closing with a brief metta. May I be well. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I live with deep peace. May we be well. May we be safe. May we be happy. May we be at peace. May all our people, all beings, be well. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings live with deep peace. Thank you for your very kind attention. Be well. Drive safely.